Amen. If you have a Bible this morning, I want to invite you to go ahead and turn over to John chapter 19. We're picking up where we left off last week, walking slowly through the story of Jesus' death, and this morning, the story of Jesus' resurrection. Surely, the fascination with what happens to us when we die is as basic to to being human as death itself. Humans, as long as they've been aware of themselves, have been wondering what it is, what they're going to experience after they die. There's nothing that's more common to humanity than death. And I think that's why from the ancient Egyptians and their big pyramids and all of their artwork and their treasures, their book of the dead, and all of their focus on it, all the way up to today's best-selling heaven is for real books and movies that go along with it, to these speculations about what might happen, stories about what people say they've experienced. We all want to know what's going to happen. Death is a huge mystery, a huge question mark that hangs over us. And it makes sense. Christianity, in fact, won't make much sense to you unless you see it in light of this question, the question of of death and what happens to those who die. And Christianity's answer, Christianity's perspective on what life after death is like is entirely unique and maybe not exactly what you expect, what you might think that you know about Christianity's answer. Everything that Christianity has to say about the problem of death Everything that Christianity has to say that is worth any of your attention now or ever hinges on one single event that happened in history, in real time, to a real person as real as you or me. Everything about Christianity hinges on the resurrection of Jesus, on whether this man really died and really came back to life again. And that's the subject of our passage for this week. Where we left off last week, Jesus had died on his terms at his moment of choosing. Everything about the story of his death that John told was meant to point us to the fact that Jesus doesn't die because somebody else was stronger than him, because somebody laid a good trap that he couldn't get out of. He doesn't die because he just got carried along by the force of events. He dies on purpose. He orchestrated the whole thing. He was a puppet master that was behind every string that got pulled. And when he died, he died with a cry of victory. It is finished. Everything I came to do, done. That was the cry that, that we ended on last week. But Jesus still died. And when he said those words, it is finished, he fell silent. He still died. As long as he was dead, his friends had a good reason to wonder what exactly it was that he had finished. He's the one that looked finished. As long as he stayed dead, there was a question hanging over not just them, but everyone throughout all time who looks to Jesus for anything. Because here's the thing, friends. Here's the thing. Nothing is finished that really matters. Nothing is finished that really matters that ends with Jesus as a rotting corpse in a, in a grave. Nothing's finished that ends that way. 
So the question that hangs over the text that we're going to unpack together this morning, this part of the story is, how can we know that Jesus really has finished what he set out to do? How can we know that his death accomplished anything that's going to do us any good? How can we know that he's not just some martyr who dies for a good cause, but still dies? How can we know? Everything depends on his resurrection. Everything about John's story, everything about your decision to follow Jesus, everything about your hope for the future as one who is following him right now, everything depends on his resurrection. And that's what we want to unpack this morning. Now, the story picks up just after the death of Jesus as the day before the Sabbath is winding to a close. It picks up at that point and moves through three separate scenes. Three scenes that come next. Each one of them, each scene communicating one crucial fact each that we've got to know if we want to understand John's story of the resurrection. We have to connect with these three facts communicated in these next three scenes. These things are at the heart of Christianity, whether it's true, whether it's worth any of your time. So I want to go scene by scene, help, you come to the, help the story come to life a little bit for you. Make sure you're seeing those facts. That's what we're going to do first. We're going to, we're going to look at what John claims about Jesus. And then once we've gone through the story, in, in a much more brief section of, of our time this morning, I want to just talk about the story a little bit. Talk about what ha- what, how we might know that it's true and, and what, what, what it means if it is true. So first, let's just unpack the story, then we'll, we'll talk about what the story means. I want to begin by, uh, by reading the first scene that we're going to unpack this morning. This is a scene that picks up with two, two friends of Jesus who, until this point, until his death, had been too fearful to be followers of Jesus out in the open. A man named Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, who we've already seen once in our story of John, he came to Jesus as a leader among the Jews at night because he was afraid that he would be outed. So he comes to Jesus at night and he never really identifies with him publicly until now. Something about his death has brought these guys into the light. This is where we pick up the story. I'm going to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word while I read the first scene. I'm going to begin in in chapter 19, verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths, with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. This is God's word. You can be seated. Here we have two friends, too afraid to identify with Jesus before his death, somehow galvanized by the fact that he's died, they come out into the light. They are ready to be with Jesus. And they put their lives on the line. They go to the man who's had Jesus killed, asking for the right to have his body, and Pilate gives it to them. What happens next, the thing you need to know most about what happens next in this scene is that it was entirely normal behavior. For grieving Jewish people, burying someone that they love, They thought it was over. 
They take his body down. They cut strips of linen. And they line those strips of linen with spices that are supposed to smell great. These guys are probably wealthy. 75 pounds is a lot of spice, right? Would have been a lot for them. They think Jesus is worth it. They line the, probably their servants, line the strips of linen with these spices, wrap his body head to toe, find a tomb that's close by, and put him there. Now, I don't want you to miss what John is doing here and telling us these details. He is pointing us to the first essential fact in the story, the first thing you've got to see if you want to understand what John wants you to understand about Jesus. Jesus, here it is, here's the fact. Jesus' physical body, his physical body, body just like mine, just like yours, it really did die. And it really was buried. So far, these guys are responding to the death of their friend in exactly the way any friends would be expected to respond. Their actions are the actions of the grieving, of the sentimental, of those who are who are commemorating the sweetness of what they had by taking extra care with the body as all, as all that remains of what once was. They're grieving because they know what you know. Dead bodies don't rise. They're wrapping him in this way because they know what you know and what everyone in their time knew. Dead bodies rot. They're getting ready to cover the smell of the corpse of their friend as it decomposes because that's all they expected and because he really was dead. Now the action shifts beyond the Sabbath, beyond the Sabbath to Sunday, first day of the new week. This is scene number two. First day of the new week introduces to us a new character. She, she showed up at the crucifixion of Jesus. She was one of the ones who was with him at the foot of his cross, even though all of his male friends, except for one or two, had abandoned him. This woman stood with him. Her name was Mary Magdalene. It's the first day of a new week, but to Mary, it didn't feel like a new beginning at all. What it felt like was death. And what she found when she arrived at the tomb only made things worse. This is where the next scene picks up. I'm going to read from verse 1 of chapter 20. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. There would have been a massive stone rolled over the opening carved out in the earth to cover the smell and to protect the body from grave robbers. That tomb stone had been rolled away. So she ran. And went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen clothes lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen clothes lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. 
For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. It's early on that first morning, the first day of the week, when Mary reaches the tomb. And as I said, for her, what she saw was not good news at all. What she saw took a bad situation to a worse situation. She saw that the body was gone. And she knew what that meant. She saw what makes for the second essential fact that John wants you to see in this story. First one was, physical body of Jesus really did die and really was buried. There was a body in that tomb on Friday. Second essential fact, on Sunday morning, that body was gone. The tomb was empty. Now Mary is not a crazy person. She makes logical deductions upon what she sees and and assumes somebody took the body. Someone stole him. So she runs to his disciples as quickly as she can to tell them the news. They've taken the Lord. We don't know where they've taken him. The disciples draw the same conclusions that she did. Someone has stolen him. What are they going to do now to abuse him, to publicly shame and humiliate him and all who are with him? So they run as fast as they can back to the tomb. But when they arrive back at the tomb, they start to see something strange. First disciple arrives, stoops to look in, and sees that the linen cloths are still there. What? So that would mean it's not a friend who's taken his body. No friend would shame the body once again by stripping it naked. No friend would do that. But no grave robber would leave the linen with all the expensive spices. That would have been, this, that would have been what they were after. Not the body. Peter gets, gets there next and barges all the way in. Always, always the actor. Always, always the impulsive one. Barges all the way in and what he sees makes things even more strange. Not only are the linen cloths lying there, but someone has taken the cloth that had been on his head and they've, they've carefully folded it up and set it over here in, in a place all on its own. Who would do that? Not someone who wanted to shame Jesus again. Not someone who wanted to steal him. Who would take care to fold the cloth and put it aside? These facts just don't add up. It's why the other disciple, when he finally comes in, when he finally sees what's, what's laying there, he believes. Something about what he sees triggers something he remembers Jesus saying. And... However shallow, he believes at some level that Jesus is alive. The story doesn't end there. Scene number three. The empty tomb is not the end of the story. The final fact that John wants you to know about Jesus and about this day is that Jesus appeared to Mary. She actually saw him in the flesh. So Mary has, I guess, trailed along after the disciples. And as they go home, whatever level of faith the beloved disciple may have come to, he didn't share with her. She's still grieving not only the loss of Jesus' life, but she's grieving even, the, even the, her ability to come to where he lay to remember what they had and to, to commemorate him. She's grieving what is now his absolute absence. 
That's where the story picks up in verse 11. Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting there with the body, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken my, away my Lord, and I do not know where they've laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she didn't know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he'd said these things to her. That's a remarkable story, right? Don't let your familiarity with it dull you to how radical this claim is right here. That this grieving woman who expected nothing but at best to find the corpse that had been taken has an encounter with someone she knows to be the master on whom she had pinned all of her hopes. She looks into the tomb and sees these two angels, these two messengers in white. What must that have looked like? I don't know. It doesn't really say. It just passes right over it. Two guys sitting there who weren't sitting there when the disciples were there. And their question to her is almost a gentle sort of rebuke. Why are you weeping, Mary? On this day of all days, why are you weeping? She's still blinded by her grief. She can't see what's really going on. And how could she? How could she? She knows what she knows. That dead bodies don't disappear unless someone takes them. She hears something maybe, I don't know, or is nudged by the angels to turn around. When she turns around, there's a man standing there. It's Jesus, but she doesn't recognize him. What does that mean about his body? What kind of body is this that he's got? I mean, we see him hanging out with people and eating fish with them. So he's digesting things, but he also passes through locked doors and through linen cloths, and he isn't recognized face-to-face with someone who loved him dearly. I don't know. We're going to have one, but I don't know what it's like. For now, she doesn't recognize him. Like the angels, like like a good, seasoned counselor, Jesus leads her to deeper understanding by penetrating questions. His questions are gentle, They're suited to where she is. Woman, why are you weeping? Who are you seeking? Mary, you're looking in the wrong place. You're looking for the wrong person. Your imagination is far too small. Still, she doesn't recognize him. She's thinking only in terms of what she's experienced up to now. Dead bodies don't rise. They stay put or they get stolen. 
And men in gardens are often gardeners. And so she says, assuming he's the gardener, if you took him, tell me where. Just let me take him back. And then the moment of truth. Oh, I love this moment. Jesus calls her by name. There is a beautiful tenderness and intimacy in this moment. You guys ever seen it happen where a child is in a crowded place? Scanning the faces, looking for a face they know among all the faces. A child who hears the voice of his parent. That's what Mary experiences here. It's hard not to think here of what Jesus had said back in chapter 10. When he's talking about himself as the good shepherd, here's what he said. I think when he said this, he was thinking about Mary. The sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name. And he leads them out. And and here's the beauty of it. At the sound of her name, at the sound of her name, spoken by a voice that she knows all too well, the voice of her master, the voice of life, Mary becomes the first becomes the first to hear and to believe the fact that has fired the hopes of every true Christian from that moment until this moment. He is risen. He is risen indeed. And she becomes his first messenger. That's the story. That's what John would have us to see doesn't spend a lot of time unpacking it, doesn't theologize it here. Paul will do some of that. John's just telling it to you. He really was dead. He wasn't just passed out and revived later. No, his body was wrapped tight like, a dead, like every other dead body in this time and place. He really was dead. The tomb really was empty, and Mary really did see him. Do with it what you will. I have written these things to persuade you that Jesus is the Christ so that believing you may have life in his name. That's John's purpose. But I think we've got to do some more here before we put this to rest. John wants to persuade us that Jesus is the Christ and I think that he just tells us that Jesus is raised to new life and leaves it as it is because he knows that this event is the key to Christianity. He tells us this story because he knows what we should know if we think about it carefully, that everything about whether we commit to Jesus hangs on this fact. If Jesus isn't alive today, then he's not worth your time. There's no use submitting to a dead king. Maybe he helps you get through the breath that is your life, feeling a little better about yourself or treating others a little bit more nicely? Maybe. But what is that if you're still going to die? No use submitting to a dead king. But if Jesus is alive, then whether or not you like what he says, whether or not you really want to submit to him as king, you just have to. If he was really dead and he's really alive now, you worship him. Simple as that. So everything hangs on whether what John tells us here actually happened. How can we know if what John tells us here actually happened? 
Clearly, that's a huge question. It's not the kind of question that could ever be unpacked in a sermon. So I want to invite you to, to have some conversations with your friends or with me about why we have reason to believe that Jesus is actually alive. I think the evidence is, is very strong. And the same sorts of evidence that convinces historians of anything that they know about the ancient world. It's not a special spiritual kind of evidence. No, it's, it's real, in history, evaluatable, tangible evidence. Don't have time to unpack all of it. What I want to do is point you to, to the pieces of evidence that have been really impactful for people who believe this that show up in this passage, in this story. There are three pieces of evidence that show up in this story that I want to point you to uh, before we're done here this morning. We can unpack them together more in, uh, over coffee. I'd love the chance to do that. And I'd love to point you to the, the book that, that pointed me to some of these facts, a, a book by a guy named N.T. Wright called The Resurrection of the Son of God. It's excellent. I've got a copy. You're welcome to borrow it any time. I'm going to give you a few of the things that he observes that come up in this passage before we move on. John is trying to give you evidence because he knows that to believe on Jesus is not, it's not what most people in our culture think about faith. We often think about faith, and it's sort of American popular culture, think Bill Maher or somebody like that. We think about faith as something you need when you don't have good reasons to believe in something. Faith is, is just wishful thinking almost. Faith is, faith is hoping that for a good result with a missing persons case. You know, you're watching a, a 60 Minutes about someone who's, who's been kidnapped or they've disappeared and you don't know what's happened to them and you'll often hear someone say, I just know that they're alive. I just know it. I just know that they're going to be okay. Well, that's, that's what most of us think instinctively faith is, a sort of wishful thinking, a hoping for the best. Faith in the way that John understands it, what kind of faith he wants for you is more like, more like what I had yesterday, sitting at my breakfast table in a, in a heated home, believing that it's cold outside without experiencing it fully yet. I knew it was cold the day before, so there's good reason to believe it would be cold that day. I knew that my phone told me it was, it was a low temperature. I knew that looking out the window, I could see frost on the car. So I believed that it was cold outside. Hadn't experienced it fully yet. Hadn't gone outside. But I, I believed it. I had good reasons, and I drew a conclusion. That's what John wants for you about Jesus. That's why he tells you things the way that he tells you them in this story. Let me point you to three things really quickly that you should notice here. Just get your wheels turning, and we can unpack it more later. Three things that he wants you to notice. Here's the first one. This is a huge one. Mary Magdalene is not at all what you would make up if you were fabricating a story to deceive people. Mary Magdalene is the first witness to Jesus' resurrection is not at all who you would make up in the first century if you wanted to convince people to believe that he really had risen from the dead. I've been listening to this uh, podcast that's gone viral, Serial. Some, some of you are the ones who told me about it. I know some of you guys are listening to this. So it's a, it, it's a uh, This American Life uh, NPR thing um, that's tracking this, uh, this case where someone had been convicted in high school of murder, but there was a lot of sort of suspicious evidence that didn't really add up. And, um, and, and so uh, a reporter takes it on herself to try to pry around a little bit and see if he really did it. There's this one episode where she's talking to uh, someone who does this for a living, a criminal defense lawyer. She talks to her about some of her cases where an innocent person had been convicted. 
and what it's like to work with someone who is actually innocent and to, to evaluate their stories and to try to find ways to, to bring the truth to light. And what this lawyer said is that there's a, tr- there's, there's a tricky thing about innocent people. A lot of times their stories don't fully add up. That sometimes uh, there will be a discrepancy in the story that you wish you could get cleared up for them because it would help their case if that wasn't there. But they can't get rid of it because it actually happened. And they're not making it up. The kind of thing that if you were thinking about a story, you would never tell it that way. But what she said is, these people aren't thinking about a good story to tell. They're thinking about what happened. They can't explain it, but they know what happened. It's a pointer to the truth of their story that they aren't trying to clean it up. That's what we have here because Mary Magdalene is the last sort of person that you would ever look to for credible evidence of Jesus being alive. In this culture, women's, women's perspectives were just not valued. It's just the way it was. In fact, she would not have been a, a, an allowable witness in court proceedings at this time. Women's testimonies were not permitted. What's more, what we know about Mary Magdalene from other gospels is that she had been basically severely mentally ill, had been possessed by demons that Jesus delivers her from. So, so anyone who knew her would have known you don't take what Mary says at face value. And yet, Mary is the first witness to the resurrection and the first one who's charged by Jesus to go and tell everybody about it. You wouldn't do this if you were making it up to convince first century readers. You wouldn't use her as exhibit A unless she really was the first one to see him and you're not willing to play fast and loose with the facts. Here's the next one. Second thing to consider from here. This this comes from N.T. Wright from that great book. He makes a lot out of the fact that we've got both here, the empty tomb and the sightings of Jesus. We need both of those things. If you just had an empty tomb, but no sightings of Jesus, then you could claim that, that his grave had just been robbed, that the body had been disposed of somewhere, that, that, uh, that, that his followers were just trying to create some myth. Maybe you could claim that. He wouldn't have a lot of foundation for it, but you might could claim it. And if you had just seen Jesus, but the tomb wasn't empty, well, people s- report seeing visions of lost loved ones pretty regularly. That's not, that's not uncommon for people to, to feel like they've seen someone that they've loved and lost. And you could just produce the body out of the, out of the tomb if it wasn't empty to discredit them saying they had seen him. Had to be both empty and seen for this to work. And, and for this story and all of the earliest accounts, much earlier even than this one, that's what they're claiming. Tomb is empty and we have actually seen him. Here's the last piece to get your wheels turning. This one's, this one's really strong, probably the strongest to me. This is also from N.T. Wright. This is not a story that anybody at that time would have come up with from scratch because they didn't believe that people should rise. They didn't believe that you should ever want to rise as a physical body. The Greeks at the time, they hated their bodies. They thought that the material world was what was holding them back. They looked forward to death as an escape from this body that's constantly decaying and holding you down. That's why when Paul preaches about the resurrection in Acts chapter 17, he's in Athens, he's preaching to the Greeks about the resurrection. They cut him off when he starts talking about Jesus' bodily resurrection. They mock him. Who would want that? They couldn't imagine it. It's not something you would have just made up. The Jews were similarly, they were hoping for a resurrection, but a final resurrection when when everyone would rise. Not here in the middle of history, one man walking around who had been dead. 
And that's why I think our, our characters in this story, they aren't looking for Jesus. They're looking for a rotting corpse. They don't expect it, and they don't believe it when it's happened. It's the last thing that they would believe until they see it. Plenty of messiahs came in this ancient world. Plenty of them died. But nobody was going around claiming that their messiah was alive again. They go find another leader. That's what you do when your messiah gets killed. You go find another one. Unless, unless he really is alive again. There's some reasons to believe it. There's so many more. Just to get your wheels turning, I want to finish on this. I think we'd be doing ourselves a disservice, not to mention John as our storyteller, if we didn't close by remembering why his resurrection is such good news. That's not a case John's trying to make right here. He's not doing that, but I think that's partly because he's already done it. Everything that he said about Jesus up until now builds to Jesus' resurrection. Everything that Jesus has promised, every sign that he has done to point to what he came to provide, all of them wait for this moment to become real and true, to become possible. John has prepared us for it. What is finished What is proven by the fact that Jesus is alive now? Think of the signs. The sign in chapter 2 where Jesus is at a wedding feast and there's no more wine and he turns the water that had been meant for purification of sin into a a wine for feasting, looking ahead to the, the feast that he would prepare where everybody is getting married that day. And it never runs out. And it's never limited by goodbyes. It's never, it's never, ended by the time to, to go back to your home. It's, it just goes on and on and on with no guilt and no hunger and no fear, no isolation, no rejection. Think of another sign. Also in chapter 2, Jesus had come to the temple. He had cleansed it. They wondered, who gives you the right to do this? What sign do you give? And he said, here's my sign. I'll destroy this temple. And in three days, I'm going to rebuild this temple. This place where you meet with God, destroyed, rebuilt, made new. And John tells us there that at the time, the disciples didn't get it. But after Jesus was raised from the dead, they remembered that he'd said this. What was the sign? I am how you meet with God. I am where you know him and see him. I am how you come to him without fear. Think of the sign of the feeding of the 5,000 in John chapter 6. Jesus told the people afterwards, after he had done it, that this meal was nothing compared to the meal he was going to give them. Eat my bread and drink my, eat my flesh as your bread and drink my blood as your wine and you will never be hungry again. In fact, you will live forever. I will raise you up at the last day. Think of chapter 11, his, his final sign. His friend Lazarus had died and Jesus let it happen. He was pained by it, but he let it happen. He knew that they needed to see death before they could see him as good news. And he tells Lazarus' family, I am the resurrection and the life. I'll bring him back so you'll know what I've come here to do. I have come to give life to dead people. Put them all together and it it reminds me so much of what is probably my favorite prediction of all the prophets of what the new age is going to be like. It's from Isaiah chapter 25. John read Isaiah. He knew Isaiah. He loved it. He's writing this story in light of Isaiah. And here's what Isaiah said. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. Does that sound like Cana to you? 
And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that's cast over all peoples, the veil that's spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. There are all of Jesus' signs packed into that passage. This is what he came to do. But he's dead now. And the question that hangs over his tomb as long as his corpse is in there is, has death actually swallowed him up? But that tomb was empty. He gave up his spirit, committed it to God on his terms, and God has accepted his sacrifice. And death has no more power. Why is the life of Jesus good news? Because everything he came to do hinges on him being alive to do it. And he is risen. So we rejoice in his salvation. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this good news. Help our hearts to love it like we should. To look to it for life. To find in it peace and rest. To find their deliverance from every fear. From every notion of guilt. We want to know the freedom Christ came to give us. So by your spirit, help us to believe that he is risen. We pray in his name. Amen.